Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. The Biden administration is proceeding with its plans to build a new headquarters for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, which will be twice the size of the world's largest office building, the Pentagon. This is happening at the same time as Americans are growing increasingly alarmed about the FBI, an institution we once regarded as the world's greatest law enforcement agency. So why are we so skeptical? Well, here, here's a plausible explanation. Uh, after the 9-11 attacks, the Bureau changed its mission and set out to become an intelligence agency rather than a law enforcement agency. A law enforcement agency deals in facts rather than, uh, than speculation, and its agents may have to swear in court. On the other hand, an intelligence agency deals in estimates and best guesses, Intelligence agencies often bend rules or shade the truth uh, to please their political masters. And along with, the, with making the FBI more like an intelligence agency, uh, case management has been centralized in its headquarters in Washington, D.C., rather than as before in the field offices around the country. It did this to place so-called operational decisions in the hand of what they've called politically sensitive individuals at headquarters. Well, now we're seeing the results of those decisions. A bureau laboring under the weight of scandal after scandal, which, as Andrew McCarthy puts it, stems from the political biases of FBI leadership and investigators and the way in which those biases influence the conduct and public perception of the agency's most consequential investment and in investigations. And these same people now want to headquarter their operation in the largest office building in the world. So I have a lot of questions. Joining me with what I hope are all the answers is my frequent guest and astute observer of our intelligent operations, Mike Waller. J. Michael Waller is Senior Analyst for Strategy at the Center for Security Policy, where he concentrates on propaganda, political warfare, psychological warfare, and subversion. So, Mike, let's uh, let's first talk about the building. Yeah, well, we what's going on? You've written an interesting piece on that. Uh, there's a lot going on there, a lot to unpack. Yeah. We don't know a lot about the building because the FBI hasn't said what it wants with a with a uh, headquarter megaplex that's twice the size of the pentagon they haven't given a reason they haven't given a strategy they're not giving up their their uh big training and education facilities at quantico they want something that's near quantico so it's not like they're consolidating right now headquarters only occupies about two blocks and, and they want to keep that very ugly building on pennsylvania avenue just across from the uh, justice department no, they, they plan to demolish that and the land is going to be privatized, but they will, they will build another facility in downtown Washington, D.C. so they can be near the Justice Department. So this place is just expanding like crazy. So we don't know what they have in mind. No, they haven't said. They haven't told Congress. Nobody in Congress has really asked. 
Well, you wrote some, you wrote about the specs and the specs involved a lot of things that didn't seem to involve either um, law enforcement or, uh, or intelligence work. Uh, a lot of things about uh, a woke agenda and climate change and that sort of thing. What are, what are in the specs? The specs for the building or the specs for their agenda? Uh, I think you can, I think, I think both, both, both answers would be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, actually, the, the, there is a climate change agenda to this because what the General Services Administration has said, so the GSA is the government's property management agency, they said that part of the land has to be certified uh, sustainable or whatever, which I, I would imagine means, you know, solar panels and, and all of that stuff, but I still don't see why you would need um, 58 acres, which is the smallest parcel of the three that the government is looking at to build a new FBI header. You don't need 53, 58 acres for that. Um, there is also a diversity um, agenda that, that the Biden administration and the GSA have, which means diversity is more important than cost to the taxpayer. So it's weighted more heavily in the decision on where to situate the headquarters. So there are two, uh, two land plots in Prince George's County, Maryland, and there is one out in Springfield, Virginia. The only one that the, the um, federal government owns is the one in Virginia. So you would think, well, that's the logical place. If you're going to have a headquarters, that's the logical place because it's already U.S. government land. But it's not diverse enough down there. So they want to make it more diverse by favoring and heavily weighting this, these terrible areas in Prince George's County. Where, where's, where's Landmark Mall? That's one, of the, uh, that's one of the spots. That's in a very tough section of Maryland, isn't it? Right, right. That's one of them. And then another one is right by uh, right by Metro Stop, which is owned by the state of Maryland. Well, if you go on the yeah. website, the FBI website, now, I, I must disclose at this point that, you know, I, I thought I was going to do a show with you about the building. And then I started digging into the FBI, which I don't know a lot about. And the more I dug, the more alarmed I got, and the more concerned I was about what on earth we're 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 taking on here. Because it's uh, you've got thirty five thousand employees, and as near as I can tell, it doesn't really report to anyone. Congress funds it, and they have some committees that uh, they answer to, but not really. If you watch Chris Ray's testimony, so we've got a really huge rogue agency, in my view. But let me let me I digress uh, back to the website. You go on the website and the about section of the website, you know, there are drop downs. And in this case, there are only four of them. First one's mission, of course. Second one's leadership and structure. That's fine. The third one of four is diversity and inclusion. They consider that to be the big three. The, the other one is just frequently asked questions. So diversity and inclusion is really permeated the, um, the, the the mission of the FBI, which I guess leads us to why they want to put it in uh, uh, where the Landmark Mall is right now in Maryland. Yeah, this is if, if diversity, equity, and inclusion, sometimes the Bureau includes equity, sometimes not, because equity means predetermined outcomes as opposed to, you know, finally getting the suspect or whatever. Um, this shows the politicization of the FBI. And if that's part of their core mission on the, the four item dropdown that you just described on their website, this shows how, how gravely politicized the FBI has become. This really started under Obama who was putting forth these diversity mandates. It really did under uh, 
George W. Bush, but not in a, in a serious way. It really began under Attorney General Eric Holder and Obama. Uh, the Trump administration did a little bit to wind it down, but I don't think they understood the agenda that was put in place because when Biden came in, amongst his first executive orders were to reverse everything that Trump had done, but then move forward really hard on the FBI and the rest of the intelligence community. So it's, and it's not just say racial diversity for nicer outcomes. This is diversity of every kind of thing you can imagine. So they, the, the FBI had mandatory LGBT plus, as they called it, training for all personnel. And it wasn't just saying, well, you're going to be a field agent. You need to know this particular community you're going to be working with. You need to know what to look for, what the different colors mean. This is, you have to become an activist yourself. The way the Office of Director of National Intelligence calls it, you have to become a, quote, agent of change. So FBI agents are now agents of change. And then at the end of the course, it said you have to be a, quote, ally for this movement, no matter what your moral positions are, or whether you think it has anything to do with law enforcement or counterintelligence, and you need to become an activist. And then they have these rainbow flag clad FBI agents wearing their FBI uh, shirts, sometimes wearing their badges, carrying their colorful flags in pride parades. And they're there. This is, I have, the, I have the manual. I'm putting it in my book. So it's not a manual. It's 56 uh, uh, training slides. And it says literally to do that. So let's talk about your book. What's the, do you have a working title? We don't have a title yet. It's uh, it, the draft title is Big Intel. And it's not going to be the final title, I don't think. It started out to look at why the CIA went from fighting the communists internationally and really defending our country and being something, despite everything that you could, it was an essential tool of American foreign policy and national security. Uh, why did it go the way it has gone? And why did it become so politicized? And then in the course of re researching and writing this, I came across a lot of FBI material, talked to a lot of people inside the bureau or who had recently left the bureau and, and said uh, to the publishers, let's make it about both FBI and CIA. So it's gonna so, be about both. So your, your, your primary background is in the world of CIA and, and uh, foreign intelligence and operations. But I guess in the course of this, you've discovered that this whole operation has been turned on Americans and away from uh, our enemy outside the country. Right. It's the enemy at home. Yeah, I call and it the enemy, I call it the enemy within, but I like either one. It's sort of yeah. the same. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I didn't work for the CIA, but I worked with them a lot. Abroad. Okay. And it was long ago when Bill Casey was was director. And it was funny because uh, Casey needed people who were not inside the system in order to get work done because they didn't have that talent inside the agency. So they went and they they uh, they got outsiders to do the work to, to circumvent the CIA bureaucracy. And you're finding it, uh, it's, it was sort of like a CIA within a CIA. And not for politicization purposes, but for combating the Soviets because the agency mm -hmm. had lost a lot of its talent after the 1970s, it had, be, it had lost a lot of its enthusiasm. And it was full of people who really didn't see the Soviets as a big threat. Well, FBI is pretty different right now. On the other hand, it so has- what, So yeah, talk about the, your intellectual path towards thinking about CIA and then really focusing more on the FBI because that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. 
Sure. Yeah. And this was kind of a neat part of the when you go back and do your real research and how the facts you find in your research contradict with what you've always thought or believed or even known. And that's what's happened in this book. It's been quite a journey. So when I look at uh, the development of the CIA, I found J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI was saying he was telling President Truman, we can't have this foreign intelligence agency based on the people who are going to be running it because it's full of Soviet agents and Communist Party members. And he had the dossiers. He had the dossiers. He did. And then the person who was going to head it was Wild Bill Donovan. He was the founder and the leader of the Office of Strategic Services during World War II, a real heroic guy. But he had a blind spot for communists. And, and he, had, he brought in a huge number of them into the OSS. It was penetrated from top to bottom, even his right hand man was a Soviet agent. So Hoover's looking at this and he's saying, we can't have this, we can't fight a Cold War. We might be able to fight the Nazis to some degree with, with these types of people, but you can't fight a Cold War against Stalin and the Soviets if you're going to have something that Stalin has penetrated from top to bottom. So there was well, a didn't, big they, didn't the OSS primarily recruit from the Ivies? I mean, it was, it was the elite of the elite and I hate to impugn the Ivies, but I'm about to, they also, as far back as then, we're, we're touting the virtues of the, the, communist, uh, the communist party. Yeah, yeah. And they had a lot of faculty, especially at Columbia University. And this is what the book touches on, too. There was a time in the late 30s, uh, in the mid, mid to late 30s, where the U.S. was bringing in a lot of uh, college faculty and scholars from Europe who were either being persecuted by the Nazis or risked being persecuted by the Nazis. So the United States provided them what amounts to political asylum. And then they were hired and placed at universities around the country. Problem is a lot of these, I mean, a lot of these uh, scholars were Marxists, were agents of the Soviet yeah. Comintern. Some had been trained as Soviet intelligence officers and they set up shop at universities around the United States, but especially at Columbia University, which hosted the country's largest teaching college. So they were teaching the teachers who would then spread out to uh, public and private schools and colleges and universities around the country to educate the next generation of people to run our, our country. And they had an so, explicit strategy to focus on Columbia, didn't it? I think it started out plainly being called Columbia's teacher, Columbia Teachers College. Yes, it was. There was a, and there was a, uh, the head of the National Education Association was housed there, uh, Dewey, and he was sympathetic to the Comintern. He was a fellow traveler. So that when they set up their institute that had been based in Germany, it was set up by the Comintern. And we have firsthand accounts of the meeting where it was set up in Moscow from a woman who, who, came to the United States also as a communist and then told my old friend Ralph Toledano, who had been an editor of Newsweek, told her the whole story. She was sitting there meeting with the Soviet leaders, including the Lenin's secret police chief, Felix Jerzinski, to set up this group in Germany. And then when it was kicked, pushed out of Germany, they set up shop in, uh, in New York. And then they produced a lot of the intellectual basis for what we call cultural Marxism. So I'm, uh, this is the Bill Walton Show, and I'm talking with my good friend and very smart intelligence uh, thinker, uh, Michael Waller. And I think we're just beginning to get at the 
the roots or the early days of what's now we think of as the long march through our cultural institutions and how they firmly planted their flag at uh, Columbia, Columbia University in New York. And uh, it was all part of a very well thought through strategy. It was really, uh, it was a brilliant strategy. And at that point in the, this was even in the 1930s, the Soviets and their Western loyalists believed that, okay, we cannot have a Bolshevik style revolution in an industrialized country like Germany or France or the UK or the United States. Uh, that workers unite isn't gonna work. So who's the new proletariat? Who's the new working class? And they thought, well, it's, it's, not, it's not over economics that we're fighting now, the poor against the wealthy, it is culture. So you think of Marxism as taking, polarizing society to take the economic means of production from the entrepreneurs and put it in the hands of, quote, the proletariat, the workers. Now you're taking culture and you're destroying every aspect of Western culture, secular and religious. Well, and, and, I'm and, sorry, and, go ahead. And you, 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 you destroy it and pit uh, sides against one another in constantly negative fashion to make sure that the enduring Western values that built our civilizations in Europe and America were completely discredited in the eyes of the next generation and destroyed. So there was nothing worth saving and nothing worth fighting for. If you could educate two generations of these types of people, they would then become the next professors, the next journalists, the next entertainers, the next diplomats, politicians, judges, intelligence officers. And this is part of what happened to our own FBI and CIA. Well, it seems like they really picked up pace when they not only talk, made it about culture, but it's specifically about race and identity. And, you know, those are groups, you know, the problem with, with economic uh, stratification, the, you know, the proletariat and the, the, the capitalist elites is that the proletariats wanted to be capitalist. <laughs> they could, they could, uh, they could advance to become wealthy in uh, in our system, and but when you make race the issue, that's unchangeable, and that presents itself with a, a kind of an immutable, um, fixed thing that you got to separate us versus them, and I I think that's where we are today. Right, and you can't change that. You can always change your your economic status for better or yeah. for worse. You can certainly try hard, but you can't change your race. Um, until recently, you couldn't change your gender. You, you couldn't change so many of these things that are immutable. And, and it, now you, when they have a cultural Marxist like Ibrahim Kendi, uh, uh, yeah. who says that Ibrahim X white, Kendi. you're still a racist no matter what you do. And that becomes top reading for the Pentagon and for the, for the people throughout our national security community. That's top a top mandatory reading and then they think oh yeah well that's the source of our white rage you know let's fight that with more diversity equity and inclusion so you it's they're not studying ibrahim x kendi to understand the enemy well they're understanding it to internalize the enemy well yeah to make us impossible you know there's no way we can atone for our original sin of being white although mark levin had a really good idea he said well look if we can if we if they believe we can change our sex, why can't we change our race? I mean, it worked pretty well for Elizabeth Warren until she was found out. And I think there are a couple other Rachel, somebody who tried to pass as black to get. Uh, so I, I don't see why we can't start a movement for 
for uh, race identity change <laughs> and, and, that, and really blow the yeah, thing yeah. apart. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, the FBI has an obsession with this and the CIA personnel, yeah, yeah. human resources. I suppose people. we had a, break a, human resource a bit of people. a landing. Your book is now, we, we, ought yes. to stick, we ought to stay with the FBI, <laughs> although I love, you're an historian. And so I love, I love understanding the roots of all these problems we're facing today. So as it, as it, as it infiltrates the FBI, how did that, how did that proceed apace? And is, is my theory sort of right about after 9-11 changing from a law enforcement agency to a intelligence agency changed their culture? Yes. Yeah. And it was, uh, it, President Bush was the, uh, was really angry at the FBI for not uh, predicting 9-11 and for not you know, being able to stop it. And so- Which so, it wasn't their job to do. Well, it wasn't time. Their, Right. But it was also, you know, they were, they were stripped of a lot of the powers they would have had. The thing is, they did have some um, uh, assets who had warned in advance that something was going to happen that would involve an aircraft. But the FBI was so discombobulated internally that they never- headquarters never knew the intelligence or none of the field offices aside from the one that generated it knew the intelligence so when uh, Robert Mueller who was FD FBI director he'd only been on the job for a week when 9-11 hit and he had the mandate to turn the FBI into an intelligence agency which as mm -hmm. you said in, in earlier means that you're collecting intelligence that might or might not be true you're using it or and collecting it by means that would probably get thrown out of court. So you can't prosecute with this. And then why would you want to prosecute somebody before he's done a crime? This gets back to your pre-crime problem where you're now becoming a thought police. So how do you, how do you deal with this uh, and protect the country at the same time? So the FBI was stuck in this netherworld of being a law enforcement agency and an intelligence agency. And you can't combine those with the same people in the same organization or you get a political police. Which is what we seem to have now. I mean, embedding FBI inside Twitter, and it wasn't just the FBI, though. I think all the intelligence agencies were in Twitter at one time or another. Right, right. A lot of them were, and then they they think they can break the law to or or find creative ways to circumvent the law, and then set up arrangements where, where if you provide something to the FBI as a private company, that's your right to, and that's and the FBI can accept it and use it. But so they were putting in former bureau people, former CIA people into these places. They're now private uh, employees of a private company, and then they're feeding things back to their colleagues inside their old organization. But it, it may have started out, well, we'll put people in and the companies can give it to us to be good citizens. But very quickly, it morphed into them making demands on Twitter to, to, to ban this person, to do whatever. It was not a, it was not a uh, voluntary situation. It was a command and control situation. That's what it quickly became. And FBI is good at doing that. You know, if you help them once or twice, uh, you'll be a volunteer and you control it, but then pretty soon they control you. Well, what about the problem I began to think about as I researched this and I began nervous about our, sh got nervous about our show. I mean, the thing about the FBI that is, we think back to J. Edgar Hoover, one of the reasons people had trouble raising reining him in is he had his dossiers and he would he would get information on everybody that he thought was a potential threat or political rival or or in some cases friends that he just wanted to make sure he had them under his whip hand as well um 
it seems to me the FBI is still assiduously doing that kind of thing, and they've got information and files on, on, on many, many Americans. They do, and we don't know the scope of it. And this is one of the big, one of the many um, uh, ironies of what's going on in the FBI now is, is they, there's this near universal derision of J. Edgar Hoover. We don't want to be anything like him. We, you know, he, he was a, you know, power abuser. He was whatever the, he's, he's called. But if you but, look- But I thought what, they were LGBTQ and wasn't J. Edgar right in there. <laughs> and that's a funny thing too. I, there, there's the best, the best biographies about Hoover are written by Hoover critics who are liberal. And they said, there's no truth to any of that. Oh, okay, well. And, but we all think it is because that's the one thing everybody, every American knows about Hoover is that he wore a tutu <laughs> and, and all that. None of that was ever true. And it was, uh, some of it was, was written by a British author based on a third party source who even the critics have, uh, have uh, debunked. And so, well, so, so they've demonized J. Edgar Hoover, and instead they want to be what? I mean, I, I, I interrupt. So they demonize him because see, the, F, the FBI started uh, as a as a crime fighting agency under Teddy Roosevelt, but it was really, uh, really a nothing organization. It, it was poor personnel. It was poor quality overall. When young J. Edgar Hoover, in, in his twenties, became head of the organization, uh, this was this was right after a spate of. Uh, of uh, waves of terrorism, anarchist terrorism, communist violence, calls by Lenin to turn the United States into a Soviet Republic, all of these things. So it was Hoover's job under Woodrow Wilson, right before he even headed the bureau to head what he, what was called the radical unit of the Bureau of Investigation. So as heading the radical unit, it was his job to monitor all the communists and all the an anarchists and others. And he did so, so that was an intelligence function. So he, when he became FBI director, he ran it as an intelligence agency, yet today's FBI is reverting right back to Hoover. So they it's went through a period of, of well, you know, it's, it, I mentioned I went on the website. It's a very interesting place, FBI website, and they've got a history of the FBI and, and they write, and I, I think this is a bit rewriting history to justify today's mission. And they, they write in the year 1908, there was hardly any systematic way of enforcing law across the country. It goes on and on and on. And, and then, but then they get to this. One of the big issues was anarchism. And th these were people who wanted to overthrow capitalism, but mainly they wanted to bring power to the common man and wanted to do with, away with government. Sounds like an awful lot like uh, yours truly, a libertarian. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the prevailing anarchistic creed, the government was oppressive. Um, and oppressive and repressive and should be overthrown by random attacks on the ruling class. Well, fast forward to today, and it looks like where FBI is, say, in the way we think they may have been embedded in the January 6th uh, incident, uh, and they were in there viewing Americans, Tea Party Americans, uh, Americans who are skeptical about the 20. 20 election as uh, as as the good old anarchists from 1908, thereby justifying uh, the FBI's uh, surveillance and, uh, and and really uh, you know in, in many cases imprisoning Americans. Right, and they once they solved the problem like the anarchist terrorism, they were pared back in size. So after World War II, 
Truman slashed the FBI by, by almost a third. But what you have with any bureaucracy of mission creep now where they're constantly looking for new enemies. So you don't see the FBI talking about jihadists anymore. I mean, very rarely do you see them even mention that term or no. even Islamic extremists or Eric Holder banned those terms and they were sort of still kept out uh, of, of professional usage in the Bureau. But they're on this constant search for enemies and they're always redefining enemies. And yeah. so where you have something like COINTELPRO, which was a series of investigations, counterintelligence investigations, that's what COINTELPRO, counterintelligence program. So that's how we get that abbreviation. And they, the reason why they, they treated Martin Luther King as a counterintelligence issue was because he had himself surrounded by Soviet agents. The biggest one being Stanley Levinson, but there were others who were long-term known intelligence agents of the Soviet Union. And the Soviets had had this strategy going back to the 1920s as the British did during the American Revolution, was to exploit the grievances of Black people in America to destroy the American government or then the, the nation, um, American government in, 17, in the 1770s, but in the, of the United States government as early as the 1920s. So Hoover's wise to this. There were some defectors from, from um, NAACP and elsewhere working with the FBI against communist agents within the civil rights movement. So Hoover had, had treated King uh, as a problem because he had surrounded himself with Soviet agents. Bobby Kennedy warned King about this and King agreed to get rid of them and then he didn't do it. But then, you, then there are other COINTELPRO programs which was they had one called COINTELPRO White Hate and that was Hoover's plan to destroy the Ku Klux Klan. Now, you never hear about that. You only hear about how, oh, COINTELPRO is bad because it's, it's violating civil rights, but you never give the Bureau credit for, for smashing the Ku Klux Klan. The thing is, they had to use counterintelligence rules and procedures against the Klan, which had no foreign intelligence ties at all. So you had this then blurring of roles between national security and intelligence on the one hand and law enforcement on the on the other hand, and in fact, there were no federal civil rights laws at the time. These and were you'll, all be, you'll, be, you'll be covering all this in your book. Yeah. So what I'm doing is I'm doing what Diana West did. She inspired this part of my The book great Diana West. Called, called The Red Thread. She's wonderful. Yeah, she's it's really, a great book. It's, it's dense, though. I hope yours is going to be a little less dense. Well, yeah, but it, hers is only this thick, but it's super dense, like, like plutonium. Uh, mine is about <laughs> 100,000 words. So it's, yeah, but it's, it's that, it's that going back to find what are the ideological motivators of certain right. things and how did they work and how did, so, so I try to cut from, from uh, young J. Edgar Hoover in Washington on the one hand, and then what the Bolsheviks are doing in Moscow, and then certain Americans we meet on the pro-Soviet left at that time in Moscow, and then going to Germany and then coming here, setting up shop, Leon Trotsky giving speeches in New York to to smash the anti-war movement because the American Socialist Party was neutral during World War One, and Trotsky wanted the Americans to intervene in Europe because by the U.S. fighting the uh, the Germans and Austria-Hungary in Europe that would take the heat off the Bolsheviks. So I'm gonna Bolshevik. I'm gonna give you high praise. You sound just like Diana West. <laughs> well, I have an you. idea. She's been on the show and she's wonderful. She was on Frank Gaffney and. Uh, it would be fun to have the two of you on. I'm not sure I'd understand all the connections, but you 
you know, she'll tell you who the second cousin was of the spy from uh, Bulgaria, which is uh, actually pretty interesting. Uh, this is Bill Walton show. I'm on with the uh, fantastic Mike Waller, and we're talking about the history of the FBI and uh, all the interconnections between uh, what what happened in the 30s and 40s and 50s and where where we are today. Uh, so, Mike, is the is is my question when I was researching was, who does Christopher Ray feel like he reports to? And who decides in the FBI which one of these initiatives they ought to be undertaking? Um, my impression, and I, I disabuse me of this, is that they pretty much decide on their own, well, we think we want to go after this or that, and they don't really check in with anybody else. Yeah, and this is the sort of the dark side of J. Edgar Hoover, who viewed the FBI as an entity to itself that really wasn't answerable. Now, Hoover didn't win all his battles. He he uh, got into arguments with various presidents. He didn't, Congress basically gave him a blank check all those years anyway, because, because they they didn't really do oversight when, uh, when Hoover was around, but now they do. And what you have with uh, Mueller in a very uh, imperious kind of way to his successors, then Comey, James Comey, and then to Christopher Wray is, they think they're above everything. They think they're above the American yeah. public and they think yeah. they're above Congress. And they, you'll see, you mentioned it, you cited it earlier, raised demeanor before the Senate where he tells the Senate Judiciary Committee. So these are these senators whose job is to provide the FBI's budget and to make sure the FBI is operating legally and efficiently and serving the public. He gets up and says, sorry guys, I don't have time to testify anymore. I've got to catch a plane. Well, first it was his private government issued a private Gulfstream jet, which could fly anytime he wanted to. They, they answered to him. It's not like an airline ticket. And so he, so he left the Senate, even though senators still had more questions. And then they don't, they don't answer questions to Congress. There are dozens, if not scores of letters, uh, requests for information to the FBI from lawmakers whose job is to provide FBI's budget and to authorize FBI's activities. And the FBI is not answering those questions. And some of these requests are years old. So they view themselves, Ray views the FBI as his own internal empire that might or might not be uh, uh, answerable to the attorney general as long as he likes and agrees with that attorney general. And so it's become a, an agency unto itself. What was the advice that... Uh the very helpful Chuck Schumer gave to Donald Trump when he came into town. I, I may have the name, correct me, but the, my, the gist of it is, you said you do not want to take on the intelligence agencies. Yeah. Because they will eat you alive. Yeah. Is that, yeah. They'll, they'll is that Schumer to Trump? Sunday. That was Schumer. That, he didn't say it to Trump because I don't think he ever really spoke to Trump. No, they he, were not. But, he, but he, he said it, he speechified the way he normally does. And he said, there, yeah. there, there are six ways from Sunday that they're going to come and get you. So here, here's the Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, who was a, he was a federal prosecutor himself, saying that I, as Senate Majority Leader, am a tool of the FBI and the intelligence community because I cannot use power of the purse and powers of the Constitution to rein them in. And any president who tries to do it is crazy because they will get you. That seems to be right. that seems to be the heart of the matter. I mean, he that's right. he's he, right, he was, and that, that that remains a problem right now. Yeah, 
he, he, if you go along, and he, the, the FBI and the CIA leak like crazy. They have their favorite journalists, the, all the news organizations that we we know about, and they leak all the time. These are these are almost daily felonies being committed. These are not authorized disclosures of information. A lot of them uh, disclose sources and methods just by the types of information that's being leaked. So this is a cottage industry of leaking and then making those reporters into superstars. Then they write their own books and then they get TV rights or movie rights or whatever else, and then they become wealthy. So their entire business model is to subsist on illegal leaks of information that are damaging to the country. Yet the people inside the system, they don't chase down the leakers very often, unless it's an unauthorized leak. And they, they, so they're allowing these laws to be flagrantly broken. And then they act all indignant when some, some kid goes out and leaks something, you know, which yeah, is- you, I, I, I want to set aside, I want to do, a, I want to drop a little insert into this. What do you make of this 21-year-old kid with his release of secrets and and uh, I mean, you've been in this world forever. And uh, is it plausible that this kid would have all this and that uh, it just is what it is? Or does this look like something that could be orchestrated to maybe provide an exit ramp for the Biden administration out of Ukraine? Yeah, it, first, you think a 21-year-old National Guard enlisted man would have access to all those secrets? I don't think so. No. And the narrative about it is too, too neat, too tidy. So you get all this racism, white supremacy, all these other narratives that feed the, the, the prevailing story that's going out about all the dangers to our country. It might be true, but I, I'm really suspicious of, of it because it's all too neat and tidy and it really doesn't do harm to the Biden administration at all. <clears throat> the information in those documents are not fundamentally dangerous to the administration or what it's trying to be doing. So I'm really suspicious about the circumstances surrounding this leak. It might have come from that guy. He might have been used as a setup. It might have been prearranged. There are clever people who can do this, but the thing is you're supposed to do it to foreigners, not to your own population. Well, so uh, he's a but he's a white supremacist, so therefore he is a foreigner. Well, imagine if you found in the I'm being your, I'm being facetious. I don't really oh, yeah, do okay. that, but you know well, there, there, there's a mitigating circumstance, so it's all for the greater good, which is another concept. We're all we're breaking the law for the greater good. Somebody right. somebody had a great comment. They said, Well, you know, this is this guy's just a, a, a white or he's a he's a right wing. And somebody said, Well, how many how many left wing people do you think join the military? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's sort of at least in the old days, it was it was conservative young men or young women uh, joined the military and uh, liberal ones did not. So it, anyway, I'm, yeah, I'm, we're trying to get Bud Light drinkers now. To, to <laughs> <laughs> but, but you have that, you know, about that, that, that woke campaign that Bud Light had, you have that as part of the training inside the FBI and the CIA. It's yeah. part of their personal training. It's run out of human resources and all these DEI offices. So this brings you to the point, what types of people are these agencies trying to recruit now? When you were on the show before, we a couple of times before, we, we, there, we showed some exhibit from the CIA about uh, their recruiting posters and how inclusive they were. Do you recollect... Uh, can you remind me what that was? 
Yeah, and these were online videos of the of the intersectional, angry uh, feminist person of color uh, who who admits uh, twice in the video of having two diagnosable uh, mental disorders. And this was a CIA recruitment video. Now it came out under Biden, but it was produced during the Trump administration. Yeah. Gina Haspel was director. So the Trump administration did not try to stop this at well, all. The, well, the FBI, uh, you know, it was during the Trump administration that they were getting very active inside Twitter and all the other social media companies. I mean, yeah. it didn't matter who was president. That was getting back to sort of who runs who runs that place and do they account or are they accountable to anyone? Well, it, it matters who's president. If, if you have a president who has a real agenda and who's not easily, you know, thrown for a loop and who really has a team that's not going to leak against him. It's not going to do all this drama to, that, that it really has an agenda to, 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 you know, direct these agencies to do certain things. It can be done. There's going to be, it's going to be really bloody and really messy, but it can be done. We just haven't had a leader like that yet. Well, I don't, <laughs> I think, I think of Trump as a small, strong leader. I still like him, but he has, many flaws and he was not able to rein these people in nor surround himself with people who are particularly trustworthy um, well he did appoint chris ray that's my point yeah he he appointed him and he could have fired him and he didn't <laughs> uh, he, you know, he was thrown for a lot of loops but he didn't have a team around him that was that that was cohesive and that could have really done something about it he could have he could have broken up the bureau because the bureau doesn't have a legal charter Congress never established a charter for the bureau. There's no charter. No, it's all it's all a budgetary item. So oh gosh. you can you can just set up a set up a field office in the Aleutian Islands if you want to, and then transfer people out there. And those who refuse to go have to be have to leave the FBI. There's all sorts of things that can be done. It's just he didn't have an agenda for that. He didn't come into office preparing for that. Um, people even this is not to criticize it's just a, a fact he had other things to to drain the swamp not viewing the FBI as part of the swamp because he like most people said well these are the good guys yeah yeah well for a long time they were so we need to we need to um, close here a little bit have you written the last chapter of your uh, your book do we know what is there reason for hope and optimism and lines of action there is a reason for hope. Uh, there's a terrible danger if we don't do something about it, because you, if, you can imagine the, the Internet of Things. Can you imagine that getting into the hands of woke intelligence operatives with police powers? There's no getting away from, from any of that. So that's the downside. The thing is, there's an upside. As much as people hate me saying this, there are a lot of great people still in the FBI. But the FBI will destroy you and destroy your ability to make a living if you break with them in an unpleasant way, like we have seen being done to these whistleblowers that came out, this group called the Suspendables. They were denied work. They were they were denied the ability to even moonlight and do outside work. Who are the Suspendables? The, Kyle Serafin. He was an FBI uh, uh, special agent in... Uh, in the Southwest, and then uh, and then Steve Friend is another one who was based in Daytona, Florida. They had to pull him off. He was chasing down child molester rings and kiddie porn rings and child trafficking rings. The FBI pulled him off those duties to hunt down misdemeanors for January sixth. So he said, "I'm done. I'm I'm." So he blew the whistle. 
they, they wanted him, he was part of a SWAT team also, they wanted him to be a part of an early morning armed assault on someone's home who was alleged to have committed a misdemeanor on January 6th. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, good for him. There are a whole bunch of them, and there would be more. I know a lot of them. There would be more ready to come out if they thought that Congress was serious about doing something about it, but they still don't see that yet. Well, even with the House's slender majority, it doesn't look like they have much power to really do the sort of things you're talking about or I'm talking about, or the political well, they, will. They, they, do, they do. They just, they don't see, see when you have a, when you raise expectations and say, we're going to have a Frank Church type committee to do real hardcore oversight and bring everything into account and repair things, that's fine. But the Frank Church Senate committee in the 1970s had 130 high-end staffers and investigative councils and, and others um, the weaponization committee only has five yeah. and they're not even working full-time and four of them are in their twenties who are just getting started. Their hearts are in the right place, but they don't have the experience behind them to really move. So you don't have that, you know, say the January 6th committee level of commitment to investigate the way Pelosi's house did and to drag everybody through and to leave no stone unturned and even on her part, you know, make up a lot of stuff. Uh, but you didn't have anything of that scale uh, under the current house. It doesn't mean it won't be. It's just off to a slow start. And until there's some traction in a large way, like there was with the Democrats' January 6th committee, you won't see these other whistleblowings come, whistleblowers come out, and then you won't find ways to identify and fix the problems in a serious way that don't do damage to the country in the meantime. Well, I have a friend who is a terrific lawyer and a very, very effective person, and she just joined, and uh, so I, I can think of one person who can help uh, help move the needle. Oh, that's good. Don't go a name for this episode, but uh, anyway, she's terrific, and you'll probably be hearing about her. Uh, so, so the lines of action are, are congressional oversight, uh, and what else? Using power of the purse. Okay. If if back to the FBI headquarters. One of the best ways to get the FBI's attention, they're desperate for a new headquarters because the current J. Edgar Hoover building in downtown DC, it's a mess, it's obsolete, it's coming apart. It's its just a, a terrible place to work. And, and uh, so they do objectively need a new headquarters. The thing is, what kind of national investigative and law enforcement services do we want or need? Where is there a duplicative effort? I mean, wh why is the FBI hunting down uh, say firearms related crimes when we already have the B Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms? Why is the FBI doing drug crimes when we already have the Drug Enforcement Administration? So if you can pair away at those from the FBI side, turn them over to these other separate entities that are already doing the job and doing it as Congress had intended, then then you're finding very little need for this giant and expanding FBI the way it is right now. You need a really good effective counterintelligence service, but the FBI is not that good on counterintelligence. It makes a lot of publicity over relatively small cases, but when's the last time we found a deep penetration agent anywhere in the United States? It's been many, many years. In fact, it came inside the FBI or some of the other intelligence community places, and a lot of times it was our foreign allies that tipped us off. So let's take a look at the FBI's real capabilities, how well they do their job, wouldn't it be better to have several smaller decentralized entities that specialize in this? And then you're really um, wondering, well, why do we need the FBI in its present form? 
we always abolish agencies and create new ones to improve. We got rid of the OSS, which did a great job during World War II, built the CIA in its place. So it's not a question of trying to be you know, anti-law enforcement or anti-national security at all. It's to how do we make this better for our country? Which gets back to the point, why is Congress uh, going apparently going ahead with buying land that's twice the size of the Pentagon for a new FBI headquarters? What's the cost of this building? It's not. There's a two and a half billion dollar uh, budget. It's not a total budget. So they put out, I think, three or four hundred million uh, to, get, to get things started. And then so there's really no ceiling to it because the cost is the last priority for building these headquarters. Well, Michael, thank you. I mean, I, as always, you've really helped me see things I didn't quite have a clear picture of before. And the point of this show is to get other people who are listening and, and, and watching to, to become aware of what the CIA is and isn't, or FBI is and isn't, and uh, hopefully pay a lot more attention and particularly pay attention to this building. So anyway, Mike, thanks for joining. And uh, great to be with you, Bill. Yeah, as always. And uh, We'll uh, we'll be continuing this conversation, I'm sure, in the next few months. Uh, in the meantime, it's been the Bill Walton Show, and I've been on with J. Michael Waller with Centers for Security Policy, and we've been talking about the FBI and other related matters. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, as always, you can find us on all the major platforms, YouTube, Rumble, um, iTunes, all the podcast platforms. We're on Substack. We're on CPAC now on Monday nights. Please send us your comments uh, either to Substack or the website, thebillwaltonshow.com. Uh, also, if you can, uh, please subscribe and um, let your friends know about it because we think we're providing some pretty interesting in-depth conversations here and want to share those with a lot of people. So anyway, thanks for joining. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.